This production is brought to you by Magentrix. Magentrix is a pioneer in platforms for partner ecosystem management and partner relationship management. This is Partner Relationship Management, the ultimate channel sales podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Ultimate Channel Sales Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Bird. Today's episode is a bit of a special one. We're featuring two guests, Kelly Sarabin and Asher Matthew. Kelly and Asher have been key players in putting together a recently released report, The State of Partner Ops and Programs. This report consists of market insights on partner operations, programs and strategy, and it's sourced from an impressive roster of partnership leaders. Today's guests, Kelly Sarabin. Kelly's a relative newcomer to the industry, but brings a wealth of B2B marketing knowledge. And during this time, she's already made some very notable contributions to the partnership space. She has published and co-created important partnership content really in a short period of time. She's grown a really sizable online following And some of her other works on various topics ranging from everything from technology to law. Today, she is the platform ecosystem advocate at HubSpot, working with well over a thousand partners. And our other guest, Asher Matthew, he spent nearly two decades specializing in channel sales, business development, marketing, and go-to-market strategy. Today, he's the co-founder of the Flourishing Partnership Leaders Community, and he's the head of go-to-market for Demandbase. They're both here with us today to discuss the key insights from the State of Partner Ops and Programs report. Please welcome Kelly Sarabin and Asher Matthew. It's great to have you here, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, looking forward to this. Anytime I might get into something with Kelly, it's an awesome time, and now we're going to do it with you. Perfect. So this report, let's get started with the basics. Can you tell us how you came up with the idea of putting this report together, how kind of the idea was hatched and born? Sure. So I was sort of thinking of the space and sort of where we are as a partnerships practice. And you're probably familiar with Jay McBain's channel landscape. Every year he's tracking the partner technology and year over year, it's sort of growing exponentially. But Mm -hmm. A lot of that technology is still only a couple years old. Other sections are much older, but they're kind of adjusting to a changing business model. So we have a very complex problem around that landscape. And so I thought it would be interesting to conduct a survey to kind of supplement the graphic of having all these different tools is to dig into what can you do with these tools? What are people currently doing with the tools? And really the broader operations problem around that. So my boss, Scott Brinker, I ran it by him. He thought it was a great idea and then reached out to Jay and see if he wanted to collaborate on it, which he did. And he suggested we rope in partnership leaders because partnership leaders obviously has this awesome community of people who are really thinking about this stuff strategically, which Mm -hmm. is really what the report is ultimately of most interest is sort of how you lay out the whole strategy and structure of your partnerships and your program. So what did you hope to accomplish with the report? I wanted to get some market data. I think right now we're really living in the world of anecdote and intuition and experience, which is valuable. But 
doesn't always align with reality. So most of what we hear in the space is anecdotal. This company did X, this company did Y, which could be good learnings, but really we need some data that's much broader than that. So the fact that we were able to get over 650 responses to this survey really gave us some market insight into what companies of different industries and different sizes are doing and sort of the results that we're seeing. So that was definitely one of my big goals. I don't know, Asher, if you wanted to share what your goals were. Yeah, totally. So what I can share is when we started Partnership Leaders, right, we focused on people. And we said, we need to figure out how we help people understand how they're going to progress in their partnerships career. But because of the learnings from MarTech and sales tech and you know marketing operations and sales operations, right? We always knew that if and when these partner people scale their functions, and if there is really a macro trend that's supporting partnerships, you are going to need solid operational help. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. the reason is because anytime a CRO today gets hired, more often than not, their first request is to hire a revenue operations person. Mm-hmm. When a CMO gets hired, they're asking for marketing operations and marketing analytics in their first headcount request. And so because I'd been part of this journey with this company called Lean Data, where we brought revenue operations to the market with this analyst called Dana Therian, I just figured that if and when, again, these partner people scale their functions, there is going to be the need for this role. And then when Kelly reached out, it was a very serendipitous moment because we realized there isn't any benchmark data. And so you can't go do something about something when you don't know where you're at. So we said, let's go on this journey and learn about where is the market at. And because we have a super engaged, I would say one of the most highly engaged communities out in the world right now, definitely the most highly engaged community in partnerships. For sure. We said, let's take this idea to our members. And because we do everything that our members ask us to do, almost everything, I would say, not everything. So when we polled a few of our members, they said, absolutely, let's go do this. And the leaders in partnership leaders, right? Because we have four tiers, right? So we have a tier for individual contributors. We have a tier for managers. We have a tier for leaders. And we have a tier for like executives, you know, people that are C-level. And so the leaders and the executives both said, yes, we need this because if we can get this benchmark data, it will help us in planning. And when we were working on schedules, it just happened that we would actually drop this report in November. So dropping the report in November meant that people can use this data in their fiscal planning. Oh, absolutely, for sure. And with that, you do have such a highly engaged community. So how did you pick and choose the key players that you would be involving and adding to the report? Yeah. Kelly, do you want to take a stab at this? And then I could... When you say adding, are you referring to the contributions that were in the report? Exactly, the contributors. Yeah, so it's really important to us to get people who are practitioners and doing this at a scaled ecosystem, right? Because I think no matter what stage company you are, if you're a leader, you're going to want to be thinking about what it takes to scale. Because if you don't put those processes in place, you are going to accumulate so much operational debt that a lot of times you can't recover it because it would be so expensive to pull things out and to pull processes out and the partner experience out that you kind of just are stuck. So 
we wanted to take that view of contributors who were doing this at scale and ask them, what are your best practices? Give us your best tip and advice so that people can read that and then implement it. We really wanted this not just to be a summary of where people are, which is a lot of what the data is, although it also impacts a little bit around what works, but then to get into more detail of how you go about doing this. So we were really looking for ecosystems that we thought in some ways were doing this well. If you double click on the people that were selected for this report, right, Mm -hmm. you'll see that they were in their companies at a time of change. So if you think about Connie Wu, right, she's a Zasana, but the work she did at DocuSign, when DocuSign went through this explosive growth period, right, or you take a look at Jeff Roth, who actually was trying to figure out how do I take a somewhat scaled integrations ecosystem and scale it even further and monetize it, right? So when I left Avalor, I think there were like 600 integrations. Today, Avalor has 1,100 integrations, right? So these people are already operating at scale, but they're thinking about how do I go to larger scale, right? Which means they have made all the mistakes that all of even Partnership Leaders members are going to make. And so we wanted people in this report when people read the report and looked at their contributions and then they have questions, they can go back to them. And most of the people that were a contributors are in the community already. So they're literally one slack away. Absolutely. So one of the curious things that I looked at when I saw the report was the title, right? The State of Partner Ops and Programs. So before we dive into the specifics of the report, can you define the term partner ops for people that aren't familiar with it? I would define it as implementing processes and systems that optimize business outcomes. I don't Absolutely. know, Asher, let's see. We could, I don't know if you take a stab at a different definition, but I think Asher's looking it up on the internet. <laughs> I am. I am. I was just going to, I was just going to give him a pretty awesome like thing that we did. In a, in a, in, we actually had a webinar where the, uh, this question was actually asked. And I know this is a podcast. I don't know if you can share a slide or not, but the, the originally we wanted to call these people pop stars because there's a conference called Op Stars, which, which I was also part of. But then we're like, well, we can't call them pop stars yet. We have to first define what partner ops means, right? And so the definition that I'm, I'm going to give you is a little bit more of like it's a personal philosophy that I have, right? Where when you have leaders, right? Leaders should be really awesome at like three different things, right? They should have a strategic skill set, which really means how do I uncover hidden pockets of opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. And they should have this inspirational skill set, which means how do I inspire people one to one, one to 10, one to 100, one to 1,000, one to 10,000, right? And that's a journey that a lot of leaders have to go through before they got on stage in front of like 100,000 people, right? And then there's this operational skill set, right? And the operational skill set is really about systems and processes and programs and like analytics and, you know, like, like it's those things, right? And so if you look at like inspiration, there's always partner comms and partner enablement, right? Like the, our enablement teams can actually help you with that, right? If you look at the strategic things, there's always like strategy functions inside of companies. There's always FP&A teams that can help you with modeling and things like that, right? But then you have this whole operational thing that's left around systems and tools and processes. And then that's where partner operations comes into play. Perfect. So 
As we're starting to kind of dig into the report, Kelly, maybe you can outline some of your kind of favorite standout insights or just kind of a high-level overview. Yeah, I thought some of the things that were really interesting to come out was organizations that were smaller than enterprises all had technology partners, meaning ISV, product partners, integration-based partnerships, however you want to call it as not only their most common partner type, but also what they viewed as their most important. Now for enterprises, it was resellers and technology and solution partners were tied for number two. So I think that exposed a lot of the interesting results in the rest of the survey around partner KPIs at companies of different sizes and who's reporting to who, which is most commonly still a sales leader. But to some degree, That is partly a legacy of the reseller model where you're very focused on the point of sale, which I think enterprise companies have (coughs) have built up this whole programs and, and revenue streams around that. And that will continue to go on. But the ecosystem model has brought in all these different types of partner influence, partner support, awareness in the market, these different ways that partners drive value and impact. And I think Technology partners are a great example of that because they're not just sourcing deals, right? They're co-building, you're co-innovating, you usually end up sending referrals. It's a very tighter relationship. And I think that this report definitely showed that companies are shifting to that what we would call an ecosystem business model as opposed to just focusing on the point of sale and sourcing deals, which was the more traditional channel way to approach partnerships. And that really, you know, evinced itself. And I think enterprises are a little bit, because they built up these very large programs, a little bit more mesh in that on average. But you see the mid-market companies have really pushed where they have all these different partner types. And we saw in the KPIs, source revenue is still the most popular KPI for partner teams. But partner influence was actually pretty high. And a reasonable number of companies had things like partner satisfaction, which goes to the partner experience and how important partners are, and then customer satisfaction, number of integrations. So I think it's turned out to be a good benchmark in terms of how far are we as an industry and really moving towards that newer model. And really, it'd be interesting to see next year or two how these things change, right? I would predict that the ecosystem model will further advance. Those numbers will all go up, but we'll see. So you had a couple things in there because you talk about the different models of kind of that go-to-market strategy with resellers and referral programs and ecosystems, very hot topic right now. So can you tell us kind of how you define partner programs in general and what key areas do your findings focus around when it comes around to these different types of programs? Sure. So I think in general, a partner program is sort of the structure of how you're organizing the relationships and incentives for your internal employees and your external partners. And one of the interesting results for me from this was that the companies that have a programmatic allocation of resources under their program were driving more revenue for partners. And what does that mean? It means we often have partner programs, but then when you double click on the program, you see that even though you have this ostensible structure for partners, most of the resources are just being allocated in an ad hoc fashion. So whoever the squeakiest wheel partner is, whoever the partner manager that is able to go get the most resources internally, 
there's no really system to it. And I think everyone kind of starts there and grows. But what happens is, and this goes to the operations, is if you can't align and incentivize your internal departments and your external partners in a coordinated way, then at scale, you're just not going to be able to control what you're doing, essentially. So to me, that was definitely one of the more interesting results is this said to me, we need to figure out how can we do this sensibly? How can we develop these programs? And and it's a huge challenge, right? Because partnerships is so dependent on so many other internal departments. So the act of coordinating all of those internal departments and all these external partners it's a large project and I don't think it's easy. And, and we see, you know, like Microsoft just revamped their program. We, I think even at scale, we're seeing a lot of creativity and reinvention in the space to try to figure out what that looks like. And the Microsoft program that has grown significantly over the years. Go ahead, Asher. I was going to say, let's make this conversational, right? Like, so Paul, wh- why did you ask that question? Well, I think that for a lot of people, when we look at defining what their partner program is, that means a lot to a lot of different organizations, right? It's part of their go-to-market strategy. It's part of their revenue generation strategy. But it really doesn't have a single meaning for everyone. What is a one partner program for a company that's doing $100 million in ARR as opposed to somebody that is just getting started and they want to start working with referral partners or maybe they want to launch an affiliate program? You know, these are all partner programs, but there's no singular definition. So that's why when I was asking the question, it was more along the lines of how do you define it as it applies to this report? I just thought that the question was super insightful, right? Because when you look at the report, right, the average number of partner types a company has is 3.6, which means it's four, right? And then when you go and ask these companies, I bet you, right, when you're like, how did you even figure out to go (laughs) and work with four different types of partners, right? Mm -hmm. Just take a while, guess what the answer is going to be? I couldn't imagine. I would imagine it's just evolution, right? The program yeah, that uh, you start with. It's, most people will say, we don't know. <laughs> and and it's because when you employ a partner team, and I'm, I'm talking about mid-market and SAP companies right now, right? Because the enterprises have been working on this for 30 years. So they've just iterated their way to where they are now, right? But if you look at mid-market or SAP companies, especially growing companies, right? They'll just say, we don't know. We just set, announced a partner program and we took everybody that came in. And when that happens, you actually land in a ad hoc environment, right? Mm-hmm. Because what happens is people take, and we, we, you and I would do this too, right? And, and I'm just explaining this, this thing because it's superhuman to just explain this, right? It's if you and I were to start a partnership motion, we would go say, hey, what is HubSpot doing? Or what is Microsoft doing? Or what is Salesforce doing? Or what is like Adobe doing, right? And then we'll take their program and then like hack it and then announce it, right? Because the announcement is actually the product. It's not the program is not the product, right? And then you land in this like situation, which is like super duper interesting where you're like, now I have four different types, right? And it's akin, mm-hmm. like for all the CROs that are listening to this, right? It's akin to I have to service SMB customers, mid-market customers, enterprise customers with the same sales program. And we don't do that there, right? But then when we come over here, we're like, wait, 
we just landed with four basic different types of partner types, and now we have to serve them all. And we are forced into this like ad hoc environment, which you then see a little bit later in the report, right? What happens is you'll see that there's a lot of co- companies that are 140 people or 160 people. I think this is an average, right? Where there's one partner ops people person. <laughs> the reality is all the managers or the partner team managers are the other partner ops people exactly because they're doing this work right and so i'm double clicking on this topic because it's a very interesting thing to unpack especially for our listeners for this session is to just be a little bit more meaningful in when you design a partner program or when you think about introducing partnerships in your company the program design matters a lot and this actually came up on a different webinar earlier where there were tons of questions about just program design. So I love the fact that you asked the question, but I just, sorry, I just wanted to like kind of unpack this a little bit because the learnings through the report allow us to like prepare for like what the future is going to require us to do. Oh, for sure. And part of these partner programs is all about accelerating and growth. And I've always looked at what's the easiest way to accelerate and grow a program and it's really with the adoption of technology. So question for you, Asher, you know, there's a section in that report on partner and channel technology. Do you have any suggestions, recommendations for organizations that are either looking to establish a partner tech stack or maybe expand the existing one that they may already be leveraging? Yeah. So my background for those listening who may not know this, right, I was basically a tech sales professional. And then I specifically moved myself out of tech and went to do data because you need to know how to operate and learn and manage data. And the best way to do this is actually try to go sell it because if you can convince somebody else to buy data, you're probably going to know your stuff, right? <laughs> um, yep. So I went to this like uncomfortable state of like selling features to selling a product that is going to provide a result like six months down the road, right? And so and I shared this because when... These companies who are trying to deploy technology, when they don't understand which parts of their program is ready for scale, then they make these technology and data decisions, and then they'll get frustrated because my instant gratification behavior right, is I buy something, I deploy it, and two days later, I have a result. Thank you, Amazon Prime, for doing that for us. You know? Absolutely. And so what happens is like if you look at this, problem that we just defined around programs and stuff like that and scaling, right? If a single partner type is not scaling, i.e. they have not done the first two deals, then they don't have the next four deals, then they don't have the next seven deals, or the first partner got two customers live, and then they got four customers live, and then got 10 customers live, right? If this growth pattern isn't visible, then investing in tools and data only complicates the situation because now you have to go teach people other things than just working on the process and the offer, right? And and you can you can see that like people are very excited to invest in this technology, but we are also in the early adopter phase of this technology. And now in like literally like especially happening right now, right? As companies are thinking about, well, where am I going to invest and which technologies am I going to invest? And the CFOs are going to say go and consolidate, right? The technologies that are producing results and actually like helping the partner managers and the partner leaders workflows become simpler will prevail. Yeah. And so that's my like long-winded answer of saying, do not buy tech until you have processes solidified. 
And to then solidify processes, you need to make sure your people are organized properly. And if your people are organized properly, you are going to need to invest in ops. And every CRO does this. Or I would say every legit CRO does this because if they don't do this, they're about to make the mistake, learn from experience, and then they're going to do this. Exactly. And I mean, there was a lot to that answer, but one key part was, you know, you start talking about the process and getting partners to start engaging and driving. So there's a portion of the report that talks about partner-driven revenue within kind of the overall part of a partner program. So can you dig into kind of what partner-driven revenue is and what are some of the key insights that the report gives us on this topic? Yeah, so I think the stat was that of the companies that we surveyed, almost 50% of them attributed 26% or more of their revenue being partner-driven, right? And then when you go a little bit further down in the report, it says that the partner source was the number one factor and then partner influence was the second, right? And then when you go further down the report, you see that customer retention was also mentioned, right? So now what's happening, if you look at it from the larger revenues playbook or play, right, or process maybe, right, is people are forcing or boards are forcing their executive teams to think about the entire customer journey. It's no longer just pre-sales. It's no longer just post-sales. It's like pre and post-sales. And then how do we go from like suspect to advocate, right? And so, so you're going to see all these flavors of like revenue coming through. Obviously, because we are trained from our friends in channels for the longest time, we're going to focus on like source revenue, right? But there is a concept of partner assisted, which is a little bit more than just influence because like influence just means like, hey, I sent an email out and I'm done. Mm -hmm. Assisted actually means that, hey, I'm blocked and you helped me get to the finish line, right? Assisted also means there's a different version of assisted, which I think will become much more clear in the next two years, which is if your product integrates with seven other products that a customer has to use, well, the source conversation then goes out, right? Because sure, only one of those seven integrated partners actually source the deal. The rest are all going to assist. And the customer on the other side is thinking, wow, who is going to service all seven integrations for me. <laughs> this, this is a legit question that was asked of me when I was actually yeah. keynoting a different conference. And somebody literally just raised their hand and said, hey, can you help me understand like these seven integrations I have, like whose job it is to make sure they all work together and stuff, right? And of course, on the inside, it's a partner ops person, but on the outside, there's going to be a services partner, right? So I'm un unpacking this in a couple of different ways, but the CROs and the CMOs and the CCOs and GB, like everybody has to think about what partner assist means and make sure that that is called out because, again, in the next 18 months, customer retention and customer expansion are going to be the key things that revenue teams focus on. And if it's all about sourcing, they may actually miss out on customer retention because there was no metric that drove processes that allowed them to double click on that part of the org. And the retention of revenue, right? in a lot of cases, so much more important than the generation of new revenue. What I find really interesting about this topic is that I've been in the channel on both sides for 24, 25 years now. And the old adage that I've always heard, but nobody ever measured, was that 80% of my business comes from 20% of my partners. 
And if I look at these stats here, where you've got saying 50% of companies are attributing, you know, 26% of their revenue, now we look at, does that mean that only of that 26% of revenue is coming from just a small handful of partners? It gives insight on a number that has always been thrown out there, but no one's ever tracked. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that as well. And I think when it comes to the survey around this question, I think as Asher alluded to, people were answering it in different ways, right? We are not at a place of consistency where to one organization, it's partner driven only if it's sourced, right? Like that's one extreme. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, when you do start tracking what counts as an assist, people come up with multi-attribution models where they try to assign a, a particular weight of it, right? In terms of how much was that particular action worth? And so there isn't standardization in, at this point. So I think we have different companies who would have the same set of partners doing the same things. And someone comes out and says, well, they drove 45% of our revenue. And the other person says they drove 30%, right? So I think we're far away from the point where this is really consistent across the field, but that is ultimately a partner ops as partner ops continues to mature and we see mature partner ops in more and more organizations. I think they'll sort of reach a consensus on what this looks like and what types of actions count as assist. For sure. And I think this is a great time to start looking at, because there's a lot in the report that talk about partner team KPIs Can you tell us a little bit more about the importance of somebody measuring and benchmarking these KPIs as it relates to the overall partner operations? I think it's huge because ultimately it ties into the program and the processes, right? You have to coordinate people's behavior in line with how you're orchestrating the whole program. And if the KPIs are misaligned, right? We see this in sales sometimes where salespeople are disincentivized to work with partners or they're disincentivized to log that it was a partner influence. And that's a terrible way to set things up, right? Because then it's like you're putting these companies at odds. The other thing I see is sometimes you'll see, even the way we framed this question, right? Like how much are partners driving of revenue? It's not the best way to frame the question because it's setting up, is there an opposition to marketing and sales, right? Like marketing is driving 15%. When really you could have these things coordinated and the whole pie is getting bigger. But I think that ultimately, in order for this all to work, the KPIs have to be part of the operations conversation because they have to align with the processes, the programs, and the incentives that you're putting onto your partners. For sure. And what are your thoughts, Asher, on the importance of starting to benchmark KPIs in general? You know, one of the things you mentioned is that there's no kind of widely accepted reporting structure or metrics that people establish. So any thoughts, suggestions? Yeah. And I have the benefit of like being both a partner exec and a CRO, right? And so that's why I'm kind of giving the answers that a little bit on the other side of the work of what Kelly shared. So we have the full context. But I would say of the four companies that I've been fortunate to be a part of, each one's partner go-to-market was just equally as difficult as their direct go-to-market. Mm-hmm. Right? And then when you take the direct lessons and try to apply them to the partner go-to-market, they don't work because you're not brute forcing. right? And so what that means is that when you do go into the market to work with partners, wherever you start, 
just benchmark from there. Don't take somebody else's thing and apply it because the variables are depending on the stage you're at, depending on the product type you do, depending on market you're going through. There's just too many variables to say, I'll take somebody else's benchmarks and just apply them to myself. And I'm like, nothing's happening, right? Now, Mm -hmm. there are some benchmarks that are just universally true, right? If a direct sales rep is providing a million dollars in ARR, an indirect sales rep should also be able to provide a million dollars in ARR. How they get there is what you have to work on, right? And so my counsel to everybody is like, like once you start the process, take a look at some of your direct measurements and like the KPIs and then use them to start benchmarking how you work with partner teams. And in the first year, I would even recommend don't have variable plans for your partner teams, but have MBOs and make one of the MBOs be revenue so that the process and the people and the program, like they're all moving forward. And so that you just calibrate. Once you calibrate in year two, you should absolutely go for it and focus on revenue. And especially right now, I would say like, and this is interesting because like the time that this podcast is going to drop, we're going to be in a very revenue focused world. So for sure. focusing your teams and just revenue and just trying to figure out how they work with other prospects or customers, right? Is going to be super important. And so starting there would be like what I would recommend. So actually that's interesting because you talk about the partner sourced and then the assisted, right? And putting these plans together. Are there things do you think vendors can do better to help facilitate collaboration between that kind of source and assist partner within the ecosystem? Yeah. So because I also have the pleasure of working at demand base, right? I understand the other parts of the tech stack, right? And the other parts of the tech stack are really good at understanding engagement, right? For example, marketing ops can very easily tell you which partner campaigns the prospects were highly engaged with, right? Customer success platforms like Gainsight and stuff like that can tell you which tickets were routed through partners. All of this can be done today, right? And so when you look at, because obviously we're all going to get pressured to like focus on revenue, right? But when you look, you start utilizing the other tools in conjunction with the partner tech that's available now, you can actually look at the assistance of partner teams across the customer journey. Now, this part of the work hasn't been done yet because the partner tech that's available in the marketplace is so new. But what's happening right now is partner leaders are being asked, and I would say asked, but they're kind of being forced because they want to like talk about their own relevancy, right? In an organization, they're being forced to go figure these things out. When in actuality, a partner ops person whose whole experience and education is around working with tools and systems and processes, they should be going to this. I'll give you the example, right? You will never ask an analyst to go do the same work that a data scientist should be going to do, right? Very or true. I'll give you an even different example that hits even home, right? You would never ask a nurse to do the same job as a doctor. So why would we not leverage the ops person's speciality is to like go do analysis, go do review things, go be very detail oriented, and then get the people that are supposed to work with other people and build and monetize relationships and just like specialize. Yeah. So that is to me like what I think will actually happen next year and the year after, because in a world of do more with less. CROs are going to be forced to go and and even CMOs or CCO, whoever the CCO is going to be forced to go figure out creative ways. And when this whole thing about like, let's welcome partner tech inside of our company happens, 
there are budget holders for other products that are going to say, whoa, wait a second. Does this mean I'm going to give up budget or does it mean I'm going to create more budget, right? This conversation will happen. For sure. And it's all about prioritization. And, you know, that's a theme throughout your report. But you mentioned the role of the CMO and the CRO in this. There's a section, I think, Jeff Reekers from Aircall, where he had said organizations where the executives don't value or believe in ecosystems, that it's really the partnership leaders team to make it part of the company's priorities. And this is kind of a reoccurring theme that we're seeing so many perspectives. Do you think that it's something that really needs to be kind of a a shift in an organization if they're going to say, look, you know, this partner ops, we need this really at the ground level, but we also need it to be part of the executive leadership principle and mindset in order for these programs to grow and succeed. We're going to need another hour to like talk about this because (laughs) this, what you literally just said is the whole reason why partnership leaders exist. Because up until three years ago, there was no place that partnership leaders, like the person could call home. And it was a frustration out of what me, Chris, and Ty actually literally went through, right? And I don't want to make this about partnership leaders because we could do a whole podcast on, on that. But like, it's important because what you just hit on is when we all, the three of us met in 2018, we we're like, where do these people go? Mm-hmm. What do they do? Where do they hang out? And in most cases, it was a bar because that's what you normally associate partnerships people to do. And so we're like, where do all the real deal partner people go, right? And they're like on vacations with other real deal partner people. There is no place. Like if you <laughs> went and asked like Avanish and like Neil and Hito and Bob Rosin or Laura Padilla, like, you know, these like four or five people or even Tyler Prince at Salesforce before he was at Oracle, right? You would just be like, they all hang out with each other. There's no place to like go, go bring these people, right? So one of the big missions for partnership leaders is to elevate partner teams around the world. And the way we can do that is we can first focus on VPs and above to help them understand how they can make the case for the relevancy of partner teams inside their companies. And then by virtue of that, they can help everybody else on their teams, i.e. the people that report to them, to start thinking the same way. This is the reason why partnership leaders, like after the first like year and a half, pivoted into focusing on your leaders because we realized that the future leaders, which is individual contributors, are just too junior to be able to have this conversation because the leaders were struggling. And so most of the times that we are in our community that we're, when we're chatting with other VPs and stuff like that, we're literally talking about what is the slide that you need to put together to help you make the case when you're going to be asked to explain what your team is doing in front of 30 other executives, because that's what's happening. For sure. Even more than that, I think in the vast majority of organizations, it's not just presenting results, it's proactively advocating over and over to all the other executives about the importance of this. And I don't see that not being a core part of the partner leader's job anytime soon. I think that that's just, and you saw that in the report, right? All these contributors who are at companies who have great ecosystems, they're all saying, this is a key part of my job is how do I align the rest of the organization around this? And I think Jeff's point about until all the other departments are seeing this as a strategic priority, which he said, like the lens of partnerships, which you can see every function through the lens of partnerships, you're going to hit a wall. And I think that's right. If you have to constantly make the argument, there is going to be a wall there that you're not going to unlock some level of value. But 
it's partly, I think this dovetails with what Asher was saying about the three different abilities of a leader. And one of those is to inspire, right? And just persuade and, and be charismatic enough that people want to go along for your cause. Because ultimately, until you have mature partner ops, there's going to be an attribution problem and an unlocking of value problem. So you're not going to be able to show it all the way through. And I think there's a lot of good advice in the report is what do you do when everyone else isn't on board? How do you show initial results? Use that to kind of like staircase your way up until you have a mature partner ops team. And I think that's really what you have to do as a partner leader within an organization. So Kelly, and I find this report extremely insightful. I love the visualization. But Kelly, if there was one thing that you could hope a partnership leader would take away from this report, only one thing, what do you think that would be? That looking at the different ways partners bring value is worthwhile for your organization. Thank you. And how about you, Asher? What's kind of one key takeaway that you think most embodies the direction of partner programs and the role of partner ops in the near future? Is there one key takeaway from the report that you think really highlights everything? Yeah, for me, it would be move away from ad hoc allocation to programmatic allocation because that allows for scale. Fantastic. This has actually been a really insightful conversation. Really enjoyed having both of you on the show. So thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Asher. Really appreciate you being a guest on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you both. Thanks so much for having having us. All right, guys, thank you for listening to the Ultimate Channel Sales Podcast. Please don't forget to join us next time. For more information, please visit channelsalespodcast.com. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to our podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode today, please leave us a five-star rating. From the Apple Podcast app, just select our show, scroll down to the rating and review section, and click write review. And don't forget to share with your friends or professional network anyone who'd enjoy it. See you next time on the Ultimate Channel Sales Podcast. This production is brought to you by Magentrix. Magentrix is a pioneer in platforms for partner ecosystem management and partner relationship management.